Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week is our first producer of 2021. It is the legendary, two-time Grammy-winning engineer, producer, mixer, Bill Schnee. So Bill, in the early 70s, I mean, if you enjoyed soft rock or pop rock or yacht rock or whatever, in the 70s, chances are pretty good Bill's hands were on that music. I mean, uh, the guy sort of... He was integral in figuring out the sound of that era. Early on, he starts working with producer Richard Perry. And this puts him in front of people like Carly Simon, Barbara Streisand, Art Garfunkel, the Pointer Sisters, Leo Sayer, all these people. And he's engineering huge hits, big albums by these people. Eventually, he kind of goes off and does some of his own production work. He works with people like Pablo Cruz, Huey Lewis in the News. All of these people, by the way, get discussed in here. He wins those two Grammys, engineering what I think are Steely Dance, two two best albums, Asia and Gaucho. That's why you're listening to Hey 19. The song is the best, by the way. Uh, Anyway, so Bill is still at it. But he, next week, is putting out his memoir. It's called Chairman at the Board. And it's all these stories. Stuff you're going to hear in here, but then 10 times more. He sent it to me. I'm so excited to read it. I can't wait. So anyway, these producer episodes, I know, are some of your favorites. And Bill just, he's such a sweet, unassuming, smart guy. He's not very rock and roll. And yet he worked in rock and roll and defined an era with his ear. It is so cool. He is a great guy. I think you guys are going to love this. He called me from his home in Nashville. Let's start by talking about your book. I'm guessing you being you, you're one of those people who for decades now, you've probably told stories to your friends and family and people said, you should write a book. And that's what you did, right? And that's what I did. People would say that to me and I I just blew it off because I thought it was too self-serving. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a, a modest guy anyway. And, and uh, the idea of a book that went, I did this, then I did that, then I did this, then I did that, didn't appeal to me. Right. But it was, uh, I was mixing a Brazilian artist uh, and they took me to lunch, dinner after we finished. And the producer said, how'd you get started? And I started telling stories and about 15 minutes in, he said, boy, you, you're a great storyteller. You should write a book. And I said, yeah, I've heard that before. And he said, you know, Bill, the record business as we know it, well, maybe now knew it, sadly. The record business as we know it was born in the 50s, grew up in the 60s, and peaked in the 70s. It was a very short time, a very iconic time, never to be repeated again. And you were there. And when he said you were there, it hit me. Yeah, it doesn't have to be all about me. I can tell stories that I know that went on that I had nothing to do with that are just fun and whatnot. So I got in the car after that dinner and called my wife and said, I think I'm going to write a book. Yeah, good. How long had you been working on it? How long did it take you? I I think, honestly, it took uh, about two years. Okay. Um, It took about two years and I was hooked up. Somebody, uh, an artist I produced uh, that has put out a couple of books, hooked me up with a publisher. So I talked to him and uh, told him what I was doing. And he said, oh, I'll be very interested in it. You know, please send it to me when you're done. And I said, how long should it be? And he said, oh, about 100,000 words would be good. And I said, oh, I'm at 140 and still going. And he said, 
He said, well, that's what editors are for. Right. So, okay. So yeah. I wrote the book, as it says in the intro, I wrote the book for anyone who liked me, like loves music and records, but hasn't been as fortunate to go behind the curtain. That's exactly and, it. And so it's not a, the book that a lot of engineer types are going to be happy about. So when I finished it, I sent it in. Uh, I said, how do you like my voice in the book? And he said, that's eh, very good. But I think for educational purposes, you should put some stuff in there. So I went back and wrote 15,000 more words, about 5,000 of which I really like because it, I, it and that was hard, I'm telling you, because I, because I didn't want to, it's not about, here's how you mic a bass drum. It, mm -hmm. It's not about that. So uh, it forced me to do some real heavy thinking about, uh, you know, about 50 years ago when I was getting started. And so I really like it. And I, what I love, the 5,000 words I like, what I really love is how the uh, editor, what he did with them, he took that and made it an appendix. Oh, nice. So, so all the stories go on and then there's an appendix. And so right. like the guy next door uh, that I wrote it for will read through the stories and then he'll start on to the next bit and maybe he'll get five pages in and it'll seem kind of interesting or maybe yeah. he'll go, yeah, I don't need this kind yeah. of thing. So yeah. You know, I've said this on here before when I've talked to other people kind of in your situation, I feel like, and I, and I should clarify this because I don't know, I don't know what we do about it or how you monetize it necessarily, but I feel like in this day and age, considering that music is, I always liken it to just a faucet that is on full blast all the time. And it's difficult for people to make money in that environment, to be heard in that environment, to stick out in that environment because it's constantly a river flowing all the time. To me, the currency of what's happening right now is what your publisher said to you they, or what your friend did. You've got 50 years of stories in your mind that no one knows. And that is, that's special. That's why I started this podcast. That's why I think podcasts and interview shows and books like the one you're writing are starting to be a rock docs are starting to become a really big thing because it's the stories that we can't get anymore. The songs are out there on a constant loop. The stories are what makes people really special. So I'm yeah. glad you're doing what you're doing because I think that's where it's at now, you know? Yeah. And I tried, I tr I really tried to uh, a make it humorous because I tend to be kind of a fun loving guy Good. and bring out the way it was. Mm-hmm because it isn't that way anymore, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. yeah, so when you started, I mean, you started nearly 50 years ago, from yeah, what 52, I can tell. But 52, but who's counting? Oh my gosh, oh wow. So oh, when I go, I yeah, right. When I go over Bill's uh, like resume, one of the earliest, um, you know, big highlights on your resume is the uh, Carly Simon album, what, No Secrets, right? Song is about you. You're so 
How did you become involved? What was it like working with Carly? And then how does the music industry of 1972, I think that was, differ from 82, 92, 2002? Uh, it needs a little bit of a backstory. I'll try to keep it a little bit. I did a short, this is the best thing. I did a short stint uh, at CBS as uh, a producer. Mm -hmm. it's, that's, a, that's a whole long story in itself. Read the book uh, okay. that Clive Davis gave me my shot. Otherwise, I'd be a lawyer because mm. I wasn't. I, you I, were at I, Loyola, right? Yeah, I dropped out yeah. of law school to do that. So, um, and in my little stint at CBS, they threw me in with Richard Perry producing Barbara Streisand. And that's how I met Richard. Now, the interesting thing is I came from a studio, American Recording, with Richie Podler, which was which, uh, who he, one of the most talented people I ever met and one of my main mentors and who produced uh, uh, almost all of Three Dog Nights records and Steppenwolf and quite a few other rock artists. But this, that's, it was a rock studio. So I was you know, when I came out of there, I was known as, you know, kind of a rock guy, mm -hmm. you know, 10 years later, you couldn't, I couldn't get arrested doing a rock mm -hmm. album. It's mm -hmm. really funny how I, I don't complain because I've had really good luck and great success in almost every, in every genre. I, mm -hmm. you know, it's been wonderful that way, but anyway, so I did that, that album with, uh, worked on that album. It was, he was in the middle of it when he, when, when I started doing it, finished the album with, with uh, Streisand. Then right, right after that, uh, they wanted, uh, she did a live album and I did that. That was the first time I ever did a live album and I was very insecure about it. Richard was convinced mm -hmm. I could do it. Richard was convinced I could do it, and I guess I did it. Anyway, he went on to do his next, uh, he did Harry Nielsen right after that, and in England, and mixed it in England, and then he did Carly in England. And he called me from England, and he said, I've done this album, and it's all mixed except two songs, the, the two rock songs. I want, I'm saving those for you. Mm -hmm. And, uh, cause so you're the rock guy. <laughs> yeah. Back right. then. Yeah. Right. So, like I said. And right. So, um, that's how it started. And, uh, Richard 
you know, I'm, for people that don't know, one of the best record producers, mm -hmm. certainly he owned the 70s, just mm -hmm. phenomenal success. And I was very fortunate to work on probably three-fourths of his records, mixed three-fourths of them anyway. But Richard loves to have options. And so even though the album was all mixed, after I did the two rock songs, he said, here, why don't you try this one? And I tried one of that, and he liked it better. And I tried this one and try that one. I ended up doing the whole album. Really? Really? So that's, yeah. Okay, yeah. so tell us... Um, sorry to interrupt. Sorry, you, about you Carly. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you uh, you know, famously, uh, Mick Jagger's there for your so vain. And my understanding is the story is just as simple as Mick called in and Carly said, oh, we're recording today. Why don't you come down and sing? And that's it. Is that the story as you remember it? Yeah. Now, that, all of that was done in England. You know, I only mixed it in Los Angeles. Oh, I see. All I did was mix it. But the, okay. that is the story. Harry Nielsen was actually doing the backgrounds and Mick called and then came round and Nielsen said he should do this mm -hmm. let, let mm -hmm. Mick do this yeah went out and did it and okay so that had to be I mean that was probably no offense to Barbara Streisand I don't listen to a lot of Barbara I don't have a problem with Barbara it's just not my cup of tea so I'm thinking wife. okay <laughs> okay so being the rock guy that I am I'm imagining the Carly Simon success being your first real taste of what can happen when lightning strikes, right? Yeah. 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 And that was, at that point in time, she was, there were a lot of firsts for me with that album. She was, uh, you know, in addition to being rather attractive in many ways, mm -hmm. anyone could fall in love with her. You know, she, she was a great, I, I just, a real artist. I mean, the the lyrics on that album, to this day, I listened, uh, I listened back to it about a year ago, and it's just the lyrics on that album are just wonderful, some really emotional yeah. pieces. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned being the mixer. This comes up a lot. I, I, I'll talk to producers and mixers and engineers, and sometimes they're in the room and sometimes they're not. One thing, one flourish, I should say, that I've always really loved is at the, are the strings at the end of Haven't Got Time for the Pain, the Carly Simon song.
and I don't know if there's a story there. I know, obviously, Richard produced the album, but were you, was that a recommendation that you made? What do you remember about that? Oh, I, I can tell you exactly. I don't remember now how many, but I did a lot of the tracks, including that one in mm -hmm. L.A. And then he went, she was, uh, is that the next album? Was she pregnant yes. in that one? Yeah. Or, yeah. Hot so cakes. she wasn't going to, she wasn't, didn't want to spend time away from home. So Richard went to New York without me and uh, did it there and uh, what he told him, when he came back for the mix he said you're gonna love haven't got time for the pain okay who, who uh, who's the arranger paul buckmaster mm. he said he said paul at the paul came in for the string session and he said i'd like you to put some blank tape after the song and richard said why is that and he said i've got something for you and so he uh it was all paul's idea mm. just completely when he was writing the arrangement he thought to do that and then Richard got the wonderful New York percussionist, Ralph McDonald, mm. to play the little toys that are on the end mm. there that have a really cool beat mm. if you follow it. So uh, good. Yeah, some really good math in the, in the beat. And yeah. uh, it came out great. Another cute story about that, since you brought it up. And the second chorus, the second chorus, uh, she goes up and sings it up the octave. Yeah. Well, she was pregnant at the time uh -huh. with her first, and she couldn't hit the notes. So we had no choice. They brought in a, a, a studio singer to, to do the, uh -huh. the notes up there. With There was a group of girls, too. And so that's how the album came out. No way. Uh, when it became a single, she had delivered the baby. So we went back in, and she re-sang it. And, really? And the single it, it has her singing on it. And, and depending on what, you know, the early albums. Uh-huh. If you have an early release of the album, you you can hear the difference. I don't know if there's any on YouTube. Interesting. Uh, I'll have to look that up. Wow, that's fascinating. Okay, so you got to tell me whose idea was it to put the song "Hotcakes" on there? Piping hot, like as not. What we got is hotcakes. Hubba hubba hubba, puffing up fluffy and sweet. Now wait. the oddest little minute of weird white funk anyone's ever heard. Where, where did this come from? I can't remember the story of where it came from, but it might've even been James Taylor, but I, I shouldn't say anything because I can't, I don't remember exactly mm. who suggested it and how it, how it came about. <laughs> I, um, I know that, I know it was James that suggested Mockingbird. That's on that okay. album. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that that was James.
Okay. Interesting. And that was one of those that was one of those sessions. They're not always like that. Needless to say, I mean on, on a hit where while we're recording it, I'm thinking it's a hit. It's a hit. <laughs> Mockingbird. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's so great. And that was such a fertile time. You know, your your resume includes people like Melissa Manchester, who I talked to recently, actually. I love Melissa Manchester. Oh yeah. Missy's great. That time in music. It was such a specific time, the 70s, as you were kind of touching on earlier, everything's happening. Punk's finding its way, hard rock's finding its way, new wave is even beginning near the end. But that beautiful soft sound of the 70s or yacht rock or whatever you want to call it is forging its own trail too. And you're at the head of a lot of the big albums of that era, you know? What, What was going on that made people that created that sound. Can you think of it? Was it something specific? No, I don't, you know, I mean, I know that as far as a lot of the, the West coast stuff, Mm. uh, that, um, which somebody's doing a book right now on the studio musicians Mm. of the Mm seventies, you know, much, you know, like the ones that have been done on, on the, in the sixties, but the, you know, there were the, the, the type of studio musicians that we had, especially in LA, uh, New York had its shot for a while, whatever. <laughs> but uh, when LA kind of took over, uh, those musicians were just absolutely superb. And we're talking not just you know great musicians that uh, that w- w- would play what they're told, but would come in on a session and do head charts, mm-hmm. where everyone and everyone in the band is just like contributing. You know, well, what do you think of this? Well, what do you think of that? Mm-hmm. And boy, that's that, that's a lot of what made a lot of those records very special. I believe it. Last year, I, I was able to interview so many of those people. I talked to Jay Graydon. I talked to uh, Danny Korchmar, Lee Sklar, Russ Kunkel, all those guys, Wadi Wachtel. And, you know, the business isn't built in such a way to make legends out of guys like those guys anymore. And it's a shame because so much of the music that we all love is made special by little flourishes that each one of those guys brought to the to the studio that day absolutely absolutely and and one of the saddest things for me about the way most music is made today is that 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 whole combining of talents is doesn't exist everybody's you know making music in their own uh house you know lee sklar about 10 15 10 good 15 years ago uh told me a, a great thing he said you know bill when I was a young boy in my bedroom learning to play bass, I used to dream about being able to be in a room with a bunch of musicians and play. Mm-hmm. And I've been very fortunate to realize that dream. Yeah. I never thought that 40 years later, I'd be in someone else's bedroom all by myself <laughs> making music. <laughs> oh, that's and, so and funny. It's, and it's so true. It is. Know? Oh, it's true. Oh, man. Okay. I'm curious. I, um, what, why did people call Bill Schnee? I mean, we're talking about the sound that's so prominent during the 70s period that you have a huge hand in. Why are people calling Bill? Why do they want you on their album? Um, when I, uh, I briefly mentioned to you that I got my shot from Clive Davis, otherwise I'd be a lawyer mm-hmm. and pity the legal system. But anyway, uh, but Clive told me early on that this is a business of what have you done lately? And basically, that's what it is. Hits beget hits. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. my mentor, uh, one of my mentors, Richie Podler had said, was talking about credits. And he said, credits are unbelievably important, maybe more important than the money you make from a gig, because that's where how your next gig is likely to come from. So I think that's, you know, that's the only thing I can attribute it to, you know, is that uh, I was very fortunate very early on to have uh, a good bit of success and success begets success. Yeah, I could see that. And I, one of the things I read to get ready to talk to you, and I don't remember, maybe it was on your website or something, I'm not sure, was talking about your, people were coming to you also because they wanted to hear your drum sound. You were able to somehow nail a certain drum sound. So last year I talked to Shelly Yakis, who you probably know, and maybe even have worked with. And he's famous for this too. This drum sound that he found on Tom Petty's Damn the Torpedoes or whatever it is. Explain to us why, when people say that, what's the magic of finding the drum sound? Why is that such a big deal? Okay, so I'm a jack of all master of none musician. started on trumpet, went to sax, ended up on keyboards, uh, started playing the drums in my band in high school. I mean, just goofing off on the drums and fell in love with drums. Mm -hmm. And early on realized that drums are Mm -hmm. the backbone of uh, pop music and in most cases. And so they're very, very important. And then being a wannabe drummer, uh, I spent a lot of uh, time and attention when I was starting trying to figure out how to do it, how to get a great drum sound. And I had learned from Richie Podler when I worked in his studio uh, what worked there. Uh, but when I went out into the, uh, to the world as an independent engineer, uh, I couldn't make it happen anywhere else. Uh, it, the same mics that, he had, that I had used in his place didn't work the same way. And that's a whole long story, but of have me having to find my way. And it was funny enough, it was the Elton John records mm. that where... Now, you got to understand, I came from uh, I came from the old school where uh, it starts recording starts with the right microphone in the right placement. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't run in and just EQ. You you know, you try to, you know, change the microphone or whatever to get get, you know, that's where it all starts with with the Elton John drum sound that obviously had nothing to do with that. It was all about EQ. You're hearing EQ. You were, you know, Mm -hmm. and. But there was something about that uh, that spoke to me in a way. And of course, everything was, they were, that was also close mic'd where all the drums were mic'd very closely. We hadn't, uh, Podlers, we didn't do that. It was four mics, not, not totally dissimilar to what Glenn Johns does. Mm-hmm. I, I just started, you know, there's no, no way to, 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 to hone it in. I just started experimenting and trying different mm-hmm. things on every session till I got what I, what I thought was good. And it was kind of funny because in LA, everybody jumped on it. Like, you know, mm-hmm. the, the Bill Schnee drum sound, the Bill Schnee drum sound. Yeah, so I don't know. I, it, mm-hmm. it also goes in part with, you know, the old school of recording and the way Glenn and Rick Podler did it, you know, it's, uh, well, let me back up. When, when I first started thinking about how to record drums, uh, when I'm on my own now, thinking about what they had done and what I'm going to do. And, and I think, you know, what do you want to mic anything? If you put if you put the mics twenty feet back, like you were in a room listening to them play while the band is playing, that doesn't sound very good. Mm-hmm. And even when you when I went up and worked on it, like Richie did, had them you know with four mics and Richie, uh, so there definitely was 
something about that close miking thing. And I came to the conclusion early on that I'm, we're not trying to, in pop music, we're not tr trying to make something sound real. Mm. It's, more, it's more of a cartoon than a photograph. Mm. Mm. And whatever it takes to be, to be emotional and entertaining is what I should do. Okay. And that's, that's, that was, that's the, the essence that. of what happened when I combined that close mic sound of Elton John's with what I had been doing except, and I didn't use anywhere near as much EQ when I started out doing that, but that's where mm. that, that's where that drum sound came from. Okay. That's right. I've, so if you, what, what Elton John album or albums did you work on? Oh, I didn't work on any. I was you just, enam I was just okay. enamored with, yeah, the, okay. the early, uh, what the one he worked with several great engineers at Trident Studios. Mm -hmm. uh, Robin Jeffrey Cable was the first one I noticed who actually did record uh, the No Secrets album. Okay. And okay. Yeah, I didn't see him on your dossier, so I didn't. I didn't think to ask about him. One thing I did want to ask you about it. Speaking of music that they just don't make anymore, we should get into Steely Dan because <laughs> you have two Grammys. Oh, he's crying, folks. <laughs> I had a feeling. So my impression, now you've won Grammys for engineering the Asia album and the Gaucho album. Two yeah, of the finest. Of, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say they're two of the finest sounding albums in history, especially Asia. And all anyone ever thinks about when they think about Steely Dan is like just incessant meticulousness about a sound being perfect and as long as it takes and however many people need to come in and play the thing that's what we do to find that sound is that was that your experience not even close really here's the deal, here's the deal. <laughs> i had become a fan of steely dan's like many people and when gary katz their producer called me and said uh you know would you like to record the next steely dan album i said absolutely mm -hmm. i said one thing is could i please do it in a studio that I really like. And he said, sure, we'll do it wherever you want. And, and back then it was a studio called Producers Workshop, which happened to be right behind the mastering lab, which Doug Sachs's mastering lab, where I, who was my third mentor and who uh, I, I learned a great deal from over time. But that studio, he had nothing to do with that studio, but that studio had a homemade console and it sounded incredible. It just sounded great. And so what's interesting is to my knowledge, I never asked Gary, but I don't know that either the boys or he ever went and looked at the studio. I don't know if they did or they didn't, but he mm. said, sure, let's do it. And we did it there. Now I had, you know, I've obviously I've a lot of my good friends, Jeff Beccaro had played on their records and uh, Michael Mardian, uh, who he and I started together, by the way. Mm. Um, so anyway, from talking to my friends like uh, Jeff Beccaro and Michael Martin that had played on their records, they told me about these insane ways, you know? And so I, I was gearing up for that. But what happened on the tracking uh, is, was very, very different. You know, the, Gary told me you were gonna have a revolving door of drummers, which I, okay. So, you know, every, every couple of days, there's gonna be a new drummer. And okay, sure. Uh, the rest of the band's gonna pretty much stay the same slight variations once in a while. So all I can tell you is that the, it, it was a, a no drug zone. Mm. Really? Uh, wow. Uh, and okay. it, it, 
and uh, as I think Gary was allowed to in the control room to smoke some weed, if I recall correctly, but the boys didn't, no, no drugs. And it was, you know, it was just a, a very magical time. I mean, I, I remember so vividly to every night that we got a track, taking a cassette, popping it in the cassette player in my car on the way home and just marveling going, yeah. you know, what in the world are we doing? What is this? It's jazzy, it's kind yeah. of rocky. It's bluesy sometimes, whatever it is, it's just incredible. Yeah. And it's, it's honestly a testament to the incredible musicianship. I can tell you this, almost every single song they came in with a demo. The demo was a piano and a bass played by the boys, Donald and Walter. Wow. And on several occasions, and this had happened previously, I'd been told, several occasions, he, he, they play it for the band and someone in the band says, Good night, guys. Why don't we just overdub the drums on this? It's beautiful what you've done. And inevitably, um, Donald would say, no, 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 we'll get it better. We'll get it better. What can I tell you? And uh, did we get it better? I don't know. Uh, we, we could have done it. Uh, uh, bring me back to Asia. I'm going to tell. jump ahead for a minute. Yeah. After Asia came out, they were brought on to the, this movie that didn't do very well called FM. Love that movie. I love it. I own you're it on DVD. The, you're one of the ten. <laughs> I know. Uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, and I'm sad to say I've never seen it. I probably should mm. take a look at it. But anyway, so to do the song FM that they wrote for the movie, and so uh, Gary Katz called me up and said, you know, we're going to bring in a band and blah 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 blah. I said, okay, great. And for that one, they chose Keltner. Jim Keltner came in, uh, and we so they played the demo and. Uh, we cut the track and felt like a great track and they went off to do their overdubs and they didn't like it and they overdubbed Jeff Beccaro on the demo and that's the record. Really? <laughs> oh man. Wow. So, so uh, anyway, back to Asia. So, you know, yes, the, the, in most cases it was, they were very well laid out where it was going to go, how, the, you know, the, how the chart was to be and, Carl, Larry Carlton had done charts on, on all of them for them. I think he did them all. 
it, it, it was just, I don't know what to say. It was a testament to those musicians. And it, they were not poured over and beaten over and flaved over. They just weren't. Now, when they finished, when we finished the tracks, they said, okay, we're going to go off and do overdubs for a few months. Uh, we'd love for you to mix it. And I said, uh, I'd already, I mean, I'd heard already what goes on. I, Elliot Shiner is a good friend of mine. And I'd heard, I knew it was going on. I said, guys, I, I, I don't think I could mix with you. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, I, you know, I, I do things, you know, I, I mix for a performance, you know, back then. I, I, and that's literally what I would do. I didn't mix and edit. Some guys would mix, you know, and cut in every eight bars and this and that. And, but I really wanted a performance. And then, you know, well, what do you think of that? And I do it again and again and, and try to figure out and find it a great one. And that's how I got the emotional mixes and whatnot. Anyway, they said, well, you'll try, won't you? And I said, sure, of course I'll try. So six months later, they came in with uh, Josie. with Josie which they said was finished but it wasn't because it had a harmonica on it where's the harmonica and it didn't have the didn't have the trash can you know mm. he, in the bridge he overdubbed a, a uh, not a trash can a uh, is it a trash can I think I don't was. remember I think he, he I think he did 16th notes on a trash that's can. that's great wow they, it's in there we started you know I, I got a mix together they came in and you know and yeah that's great and then started what about this uh, yeah, we can try that. And then what about that? Yeah, we can try that. And yeah. And you know, about six hours later, it was like, yeah, it's feeling pretty good. And I was toast. I couldn't. And so I, when we ended, I just said, guys, you know, good luck uh, with it. It's a phenomenal album. You know, Elliot's Elliot will nail it. And Elliot is a much more patient man than I am. Yeah. And I don't explode. I just keep it inside, you know, sure. so I, it, it, it would have just, it would have killed me. It was just yeah. too frustrating. Wow. So a no drug zone. And, and it sounds like it's not my, my understanding, or maybe my, my presumption about how they would work is that they have, they have sort of the concept for a song, maybe the, maybe the bones, but they overall there, it's about a feel and who can help deliver the feel that we have in our heads the best. So we're going to bring in different drummers we're going to bring in like Jay Graydon did the solo on Peg, but he was one of several people that did the solo. And we decided his solo was the one most in keeping with our feel. Is that kind of how it is? Is it loose like that or is it more structured? Well, like I said, as far as the, as far as the tracking dates went, 
they were just very plaintive. I mean, they okay. just, you know, there was nothing, nothing was labored over. It definitely yeah. was all about feel. That doesn't feel good. Let's, hmm. what can we do to make it feel better? That kind of thing. That's all it was. Now, the, the overdub process is, I know, is where they start to go under the microscope and go crazy. But, you know, the tracking dates were great. Wow. The, 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 the interesting thing to me about that is, so here they hit on something big obviously with Asia. So what do you do to follow it up? Change absolutely everything. Go to New York. And, and as uh, well, Jeff Picaro, you know, who was one of my best friends, as Jeff Picaro told me, you know, he, he played one of the songs, you know, for days with different bands and all they were trying to do, they had decided that, that they needed the perfect drum sound. And what would it take to get the perfect drum sound? And it would, so we'd have the drummer play with this rhythm section and then play the song with this rhythm section and then listen just to the drum tracks and then overdub everything. The point being is that they went totally with a microscope, totally. Mm -hmm. So much so that in this, in this quest for the best drum sound anyone's ever heard, they commissioned Roger Nichols, their engineer, to build the first sampled drum computer, uh, Wendell, which, you know, and- They um, named it Wendell? Yeah, he named it Wendell. <laughs> Wendell was the, was the first one. And then he came out with a product called, I think it was called Wendell Jr. or something that mm -hmm. people could buy, which didn't put him. But anyway, he, um, you know, that th th that was it. And, but, you know, and you probably know if you're a Steely Dan fan, the, the Troubles just plagued that album. Mm -hmm. The song getting erased. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's have a moment of silence for that poor second engineer. Uh, the one that got erased, uh, Walter's girlfriend uh, overdosing, Walter getting hit by a taxi cab, uh, just insane stuff while they're driving everybody, including themselves probably insane, making the record. And so the funniest thing is it, at a certain point, they couldn't take it anymore and they pulled out, and I'm blanking on it, they pulled out one of the Steve Gadd tracks that I cut, is it Third World Man? Is that I'd have there? to look. Uh, uh, yes, and, but I don't remember the credits, like who played on what. Yeah, that's it. And okay, and, they, and so and they finished that up. That's a that's a track from Asia. So really? When, yeah. So when we were, when, when, when it won the Grammy and uh, for engineering, I went up with Elliot and, and uh, I said, Elliot, can I speak first? And he said, sure. And I went, 
Guys, I'm really along for the ride on this one. I, I, I only did one song. It's kind of silly. And Elliot piped in and he said, no, are you kidding? If we didn't have that song, we'd still be working on the record. <laughs> that's great. So, oh, that's so funny. So Gaucho was largely recorded in New York then? Almost entirely, as far as I know. Okay. I'm glad to hear you say this. And this is, I'm getting in deep nerdery here. One of my earliest musical memories, one of the foundational songs that turned me on to pop music and everything is Hey 19. To me, that song sounds like, and I always think about Steely Dan in general. I know they're such an LA band, but that song in particular and their sound makes me think of like Manhattan late at night in the late 70s, early 80s with like steam coming out of manhole <laughs> covers. You know what I mean? This sure. there, It's just so you can smell it almost. Yeah. But I know I that. Oh, so, okay. So good. I know that they are primarily LA based and FM is obviously a very LA song and everything, but I've just always thought, why do I feel like, so like I'm in the heart of New York grittiness when I hear something like, Hey, 19. And I'm so glad that you there say you that go. because that's, that's where it was. There you go. Good. That justifies my feelings. So are, I mean, are Walter and Don, I get the impression that they almost just like speak a secret language just to each other. Are they easy to get along with? Do you, you know, did you befriend yeah. them? Okay. Um, let's see. How do I say this? Okay. Uh, it, it seemed to me like in the tracking, Donald was 70% okay. in charge and Walter 30. Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, that's an interesting point, the way you put it, at secret language, because, yeah, th there wasn't a lot of communicating exactly between the two of them. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was, like I said, mostly Donald and then Walter would make a suggestion and, mm -hmm. you know, and it, he would be listened to, obviously, Donald would listen to him. But Yeah, some people like Hall and Oates or whatever, just there's a dominant force, but that force isn't complete without the 30% of that other partner, you know what right. I mean? Absolutely. And and, uh, and Walter and and Donald seem like one of those partnerships too. Now I get it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hence the solo records. Exactly. Tell yep. the story. Yeah. That's it. Okay. Um, moving on. Okay. So, <laughs> yes. Okay. Speaking of another. Speaking of, uh, like I said, I was going to throw in some of my favorite songs that you've worked on, Art Garfunkel's Breakaway album. Again, I don't know if this is one that you were in the room for or that you mixed after the fact, but one of my favorite covers is his version of Stevie Wonder's um, I Believe When I Fall in Love, It'll Be Forever. Do you have any stories that relate back to that song? Um, again, that one I only mixed. I mean, okay. I think I, I did uh, on Disney Girls, I overdubbed Bruce Johnson.
They added a last minute kind of vocal, some more vocals in there. But uh, I have to say that, you know, people, what is your favorite album? What is your favorite album? Well, I, you know, you, you know, you just talked about two of them right now, because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that is one of my favorite albums that I've done. There is no one favorite album, but that that really is a great album. Uh, I thought Richard did a marvelous job. Richard Perry did that again yeah. and did a marvelous job on it. He did it as a makeout album. You know, it's very sensual it. kind of uh -huh. stuff. It which, is. Of course, at, at the end, the funny story about that is now when si Simon and Garfunkel broke up, Artie did a record called Angel Claire. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful, beautiful record. It was done in a church by Roy Halley, the engineer that worked, that did the Simon and Garfunkel sure. records, fabulous engineer. And it's a beautiful ambient album. Well, um, Paul tells him, that is a wimp ass album. <laughs> and my words, not Paul's. That, right. that is a wimpy album, you know, on your next album, you gotta have, you know, put some grit, you know. Yeah. So lo and behold, he sends him a song, My Little Town. In my little town, I grew up believing God keeps his eye on us all. And he used to lean upon me as I pledged That, that's pretty gritty. Nothing but the dead and dying back in my little town. Right, true. So they get together. To, uh, Paul gets together with him to work on it. And lo and behold, they start singing harmony like they, you know, just happened naturally. Right. And they decide, you know, let's make it a, a an S&G kind of thing, you know. And so that, that's what it was. And of course, Richard at the time was not very happy because that, that song is a little out of place in this quote, makeout album, close True. quote. Mm -hmm. But it became a huge hit. And so, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. I, as we all know, money, money, <laughs> height on yeah. the charts, money, right. a lot of things will change attitudes. Right. You know, uh, yeah. you know, someone said once, that record didn't sound very good until it got to number 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so changes it like you said earlier hits begat hits yeah yeah so okay. anyway but yeah Artie was Artie is a very unusual person mm -hmm. and uh with a just a gorgeous voice just angel angelic yeah. yeah 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 he's one of the best um okay I want to ask you about an album that you worked on that this is we've talked about we're going to talk about everything that I love and here's one that I'm a little bit baffled by are you ready I'm so, ready. okay. The Jackson's live album. If you look around, the world's coming again. 
you worked on that. I have that album, and to me, something about it, it's not loud enough. It's not dynamic enough. I was listening to it again just to get ready to talk to you, and I think there's something is wrong. This album feels kind of muted to me. Like it's not, you can't turn it up all the way. And I have always wondered if that was just the CD that I bought 10 years ago or whatever, or if that was on purpose, or am I mishearing anything? Do you know what I'm talking about at all? Are you aware of this? Why don't you just come out and say that you think I did a crappy job mixing it? <laughs> well, That's okay. I can, I can take I'm, it. <laughs> I'm perplexed by the mix, I guess is what I'll say. Okay. I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. Uh, the okay. only thing, the only thing I can say, I've never heard the CD, mm. so I wouldn't know. I, I thought the, I, I got to tell you, I thought the album sounded pretty good. And mm -hmm. uh, Bruce, who did all of his records, uh, you know, when he heard it, he uh, told me he thought it sounded great. Okay. So, now, what could happen? What often did happen uh, in the beginnings of CDs is, you know, people. Uh, record companies to save money would just have some in-house guy that might not, you know, whatever, uh, make the, the, the masters to, for the glass masters to make CDs out of. And maybe he, somehow they compress the daylights out of it or something. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I've never understood it to me there. That album, it just sounds muted to me and I've never known why for a group as exciting as they were. And those songs as great as they were, something about it feels like it's not turned up to 10. I've just always wondered. Okay. Well, if, oh. I mean, yeah, it, 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 well, whatever. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. But you don't, you, you don't hear it. No one's ever said that before. I'm the, I'm the one annoying guy. Okay. Yeah, well, well, I mean, I, yeah, somebody just was complimenting about, on, about it the other day. Well, it's great. I, I mean, it's great. I just feel like it could even sound better, but I can't put my finger on why. Speaking of sounding now, Explain to me what exactly the Thelma Houston album you worked on, I Got the Music in Me. Something about as they're performing it, it's going directly to vinyl or what's happening? What is the story? Ain't got no troubles in my life. No foolish dreams to make me cry. I'm never frightened or worried. I know I'll always get by. I heat up.
of course, historically, is in the 40s and into the 50s, uh, everything was recorded direct to disc. There was no tape. We didn't get tape until the, you know, 48, was it 48 uh, from Germany? So we, we uh, everything was recorded direct to disc. As a result, uh, everything was, it, and it was a very different time then because everything was about capturing a performance because that, that's what it was gonna be. It was all live. And Doug Sachs, who started the mastering lab and who knew that recording direct to disc sounded better than going through tape did, as I mentioned earlier, there was a studio in the back of his place called Producers Workshop. Mm -hmm. And he did a direct-to-disc album with his partner, Lincoln Mayorga, who's a keyboard player arranger. And they did, they did an album right when they opened the mastering lab in 69. And he did it to promote the sound, to the fact that he had this great sounding mastering mm -hmm. uh, chain. And then Lincoln loved doing that. So in 71, they did another one. And then in 73, they did a third. And by then, I, uh, Doug and I were close and he had me do it. And this is where, for those of you that have never heard of it, you literally went in the studio and in three days, your record was recorded, mixed and mastered uh, because you recorded one whole side of the album to the, the lathe that made the lacquer master that LPs were made from. And so needless to say, the, the, the tension and pressure is, is kind of immense. And when, when I finished that, uh, I was just blown away. It was the most fun I'd ever had in the studio. And I really wanted to do it, another one. So I, I went to Doug and uh, this about a year later and I said, Doug, I wanna produce a direct-to-disc record and I wanna use a vocalist. And he, he looked at me cross-eyed and, and said, I'll have to think about that. And it took about, we talked a couple more times to, and two weeks and we got it settled that, okay, I think it's a good idea. Let me run it by Lincoln. Lincoln didn't go for it at all. He said, this is not a record company. This is just to record my stuff. You know, what are you talking about? If we were gonna do something like this, why would you hire this kid? How do you know he can do it? How do you know, you know, everything will work? It's ridiculous. It's gonna be costly and everything and everything. Took him about almost two months to convince Lincoln. Finally, he did. At that point in time, I'd only worked with two artists that I knew could walk up to a microphone uh, on the last cut of the record and deliver a performance. And the first one was Barbara Streisand. So I called her manager, boyfriend, and former hairdresser, John Peters, and said, uh, and it, it, you know, started. Uh, uh, sir, I just uh, worked on Barbara's last three records and I'm wanting to produce a record. And it was a little bit like this, go away kid, you're bothering me. So that was the end of that. And from there, the only other one I'd worked with, I had just done some singles, uh, engineered some singles and mixed some singles for a new artist on Motown, Thelma Houston. So yeah. I went to uh, Motown and asked to, about a loan out agreement and put it together and that's that's what we did oh, and that uh, was great yeah it was and remains one of the highlights of, I of, bet. My, of my career in fact doug Sachs, um I, I i only produced two that i really am thrilled with uh that was a uh, direct to disc i'm talking about that was uh -huh. one and james newton howard and friends uh, mm. have you heard that one i haven't heard it but i uh, i know of it yeah 
Uh, that which is basically it's kind of well Luca 3 isn't there it's all keyboards but mm. it's basically Toto guys And all all keyboards, and uh, on Doug's uh, deathbed, almost literally, uh, he said, "I just wanted to tell you that Thelma Records the most exciting thing we ever did, and James Newton Howard is the best sounding thing we ever did." Yeah, but they're fast. It's fascinating. Uh, just such an incredible, incredible way of doing it. Yeah. So I mean, there's. Oh, I mean, well, maybe let, me this... you, let me give you a quick, cute story. Which yes, is, please. Uh, we're on. So we're on side two and you know the way it goes you know people need to realize that when you mix from tape or from a computer you know the the drums are the same you know if you're working for four hours it, this exact same drum sound is coming every single time the guitar is the exact same notes exact same dynamics everything the vocal is exactly the, now think about it you're recording live people and you know the last time you did this side it's you know this guy played this and that you know but so the dynamics are going to constantly be changing the vocals never going to be identical with a real great singer mm -hmm. that kind of thing so it's it, it is a a real challenge in mixing well mixing isn't the only challenge so here we are on uh, the the side two we're getting close to the end we're almost done uh, with the album obviously and here let's do this here we go maybe take two it was or something and remember takes are 16 minutes long it's the whole thing so we're going along and everything is great and i'm really you know enjoying what i'm doing which doesn't always happen you know I'm, i really feel like i'm getting it i'm getting it i'm getting it and the last song on the album is the beatles song got to get you into my life and we're going along and the the the, the first refrain ends da -da 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 -da. Doom, doom, doom. Da, 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 and there's no Thelma. And I grab the fader and I go, what, what? And all of a sudden you hear a, I'm sorry. She, oh, locked, no. up. she locked up and, and, and couldn't remember the lyrics. Oh, and of course, no. I, I, I hit the talk back. I said, it's okay, sweetie. It, you were sounding great. We'll get it this time. And of course, inside I was dying. Yes. And uh, yeah, that was the one that got away. So when that happens, you have to start over from the beginning of the side, not just the beginning of the song, right? Every take is the complete side. Gosh. You can't, you can't stop the lathe. Oh, wow. No editing allowed. That is amazing. That is amazing. I love that story. 
poor Thelma. And she's so great. I wish she was known for more than don't leave me this way. Cause there's really? more to her than that, you know? Oh, I know. Yeah. yeah. Especially those seventies albums like this one. She was great. Now, um, you did a couple of Marvin Gaye albums, including a live one. We're talking about live music. Did you did interact? That one sound okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. That one sounded great. Yes. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, here. Uh, do you want me to tell you a story about that one? Please. And uh, did you okay. ever interact with Marvin? First of all, I did, in, in the early 70s, I mixed several records for Motown. It was a Rare Earth record, and um, I can't remember. I can see her face, and I can't remember. She was a television star, too. Anyway, I did several, mixed several records and never got credit. They wouldn't give credit. I, special thanks, Bill Schnee. You know, I, that doesn't do me any good, hello? So when Motown asked me to do it, I said, uh, you know, they said, you know, he hasn't sung in a few years. Uh, we're a little nervous about it, but it's it's worth, you know, we're hoping that something explosive will happen. It is a one shot, which is just like the Streisand one was, which means you go in um, and you get a rehearsal in the afternoon and tonight you record. So it's, you know, you, you're talking about really having to grab, grab yeah. and go. And I said, I just have two requests. And said, okay. One, I get credit on the album. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and Suzanne DePass was Barry's right-hand guy and mm-hmm. girl. And she said, uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And uh, two, that I get a shot at mixing it. You don't have to use my mix. If he doesn't want to use it, that's fine. But at least I want a shot. Mm-hmm. And so she said, okay, well, one out of two isn't bad, is it? No, no, I never got a shot at mixing it. But Really? No, we'll, uh, we'll circle back. We'll circle back. Okay. Bring me back to that. Okay. But so I went, I went up to Oakland. I got a truck. I uh, went up to Oakland the day, uh, day before, day of, did all the setups, everything. Here we go. And rehearsed, rehearsed. And it was a smoking band. I mean, just a smoking band. You couldn't, back then, that was as good an R&B band as you could put together. Mm-hmm. And with, horn, let alone with horns and strings. And sadly, my only interaction with Marvin was meeting him right then, right before it started. 
and he was nervous. He was very nervous. He did one or two songs vocally okay. with the, on the sound check, and then and then came down. So when I came off the truck, he was there, and uh, I introduced myself, and and he said, uh, well, "Nice to meet you. You got any gum?" <laughs> I said, "Yeah." As a matter of fact, I was an avid gum chewer back then, and I gave him some gum. He was very nervous, but boy, that night came, and and he smoked it. Yeah, he did. So, Here's the cute story. They didn't, yes. as I said, they didn't let me mix it. Well, some 20 years later, almost, Motown is now sold. Barry Gordy's out. And they got a person, uh, a girl in charge of special projects for Motown Records. And I, I, I have no idea why. I've never heard of it happening before or since. She wanted it remixed and she called me. Really? And so no here, way. yeah. And so in, into my studio comes the uh, 16 tracks, I guess, uh -huh. the multi-track tapes. And it's, you know, kind of funny, you know, you're, uh, you're, you know, you don't change a tremendous amount. And it was 20 years old or something, but you know, my humor hadn't changed and my handwriting had, at first I noticed my handwriting hadn't changed. It was terrible <laughs> then, it's terrible now. And, uh, but then the humor, because on the, you know, we have a track sheet that sells what's on every track, you know, uh -huh. bass, guitar, piano, whatever, kick, uh -huh. snare. And then there were two tracks, strings, and there was an asterisk. And at the bottom, the, the key to the asterisk said, good luck. Because, <laughs> because with a kick, kicking butt band and a horn section, trying to get a, a string sound was just right. never, never going to work. Oh, but uh, I did get to remix it. I do believe my mix is considerably better. And Great. I'm sad that Marvin never got to hear it. No kidding. That's funny. It's like you were leaving a little note for your future self. You know, <laughs> if you ever see this again, know that good luck with the string section on here. Yeah. I love well, that. I, you know, I, I figured, I, I, you know, I, I, in case they don't keep their word, which they didn't, and I don't get uh -huh. to mix it, but the first uh -huh. time around, but whatever. That's great. Yeah, that's a great album. Now, speaking of people, what I think it seems like one of your longest standing partnerships that was also a really successful one is with Pablo Cruz. Right. And I love those guys. I've had David Jenkins on here a while back. And um, how did that happen? And that, from what I can tell, that seems to be, you know, it looks like you start out as sort of a tape operator, mixing, engineering, but you really, I think, produce all the Pablo Cruz albums that you work on, right? Yeah. Um, I, actually, I never was, I really never was a second very much. I, I mm. That's a whole nother story. But I mean, I, I just, I felt, I, I, it was sink or swim early on and I managed to swim and okay. I've been swimming ever since. Good. But I had, you know, when I want, I, um, and I, as I said, Clive gave me a shot as a producer and, um, I started with a band and had got a top 30 hit right away, a group called Sweat Hog.
so I was off to the races. But then when I started working with Richard on these big albums, because you know we did Ringo, the Ringo albums, and Carly Simon's albums and stuff, and I got gotten away from producing. So actually, Thelma's record was my entree back into producing, even though that for what it, for what it was. But um, I found a band that I liked, and uh, they they had a song that I thought was a hit, and so I which one. Some, uh, no, you'd never heard of them. There's a oh, band okay. called Dancer, hmm. and I took them uh, to uh, a and I took them to a And M. There was a an A&R guy there, Kip Cohen, that heard what I heard, especially in the single. And so uh, he gave me a budget. I made an album. The single didn't happen. Nothing, nothing. But Kip believed in me. Hmm. And so a little, pretty soon after that, he said, um, "I've got a band here called Pablo Cruz. They've made their first record. They want to make their second record." They're going to be in LA, and would you like to hear them? We'll set up uh, in a rehearsal studio. I said sure. So they came, and I met them. And uh, you know, rehearsal studios are all kind of the same. There's a stage at one end, and then couch and chairs and uh, coffee table, and uh, you know, all kind of funky stuff. Right. At least this one was. Uh, so they went and they played for me, and what they they played like five or six grooves. Mm. They didn't play one song. It was just mm. some grooves. Uh, and I, I really liked what I heard. The, 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 their, that original bass player and the drummer, who was a fantastic drummer, the, the two of them were just locked and nailed. And uh, so it really spoke to me. Anyway, uh, so when they, uh, they finished their, their little set, if you will, they came down and were talking just like we do and i've got my legs up on the coffee table where there were potato chips and cokes and stuff and we talked for about 10 minutes and then bud the bass player said we heard that you're kind of crazy but you seem normal to me and with with that i took my legs went sideways across the whole thing knocking drinks and potato chips everywhere got up and walked out uh, so the manager called me the next day and said you sure know how to make an exit and i said <laughs> And he said, okay, well, what do you think? And I said, well, I'll tell you what I think. Uh, they they want to go in the studio in a month and they're not even close to being ready. I said, I'll come up to San Francisco and work with them, but you know, there's no way, you know? And so he said, all right, I'll talk to him. And I never heard from him again. They went in, they went in with another producer and made their second record. And once again, there wasn't a hit on it. And uh, those were the days long gone now where lo and behold a and believed in him gave him a third shot yeah and uh i was sitting home one day and a tape came in the mail from the manager in san francisco and there were four songs on it i still have it and uh the third song on the tape was what you're gonna do
so good. And I called him up and I said, I'll be right up. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's great. I and love those know, guys. I, I, I got to tell you that, that it's the saddest thing to me because what I heard in that band and making that first album was so much fun because like I said, you know, drums are the basis of everything to me. And I've obviously been very fortunate. I worked with the best drummers in the world, mm -hmm. but you know, all bands don't have phenomenal drummers, mm -hmm. but that band really had the phenomenal drummer and the combination of he and Bud, who was the, the second singer, he and Dave were the singers. And he was a Mississippi boy, I believe, Southern boy with very soulful uh, voice and very soulful playing. And it, they were just great. Yeah. Unfortunately, the record comes out, it's on its way up the charts and Bud's wife makes him quit the band to get in with her. She was a singer and had made records and she, she, she didn't like him having success without her. So Jerry Moss, the M of A&M, knew how good he was, gave him a record deal for the two of them, uh, which sadly didn't yield anything. But what's even sadder to me is what it did to Pablo Cruz because that, that voice, uh, that, that, that soulful voice to compliment Dave's was yeah. never there again. And the guy they got to replace him was okay, but I, I hate to say it, tell, tell the story, but we, I went up for the next record, and after uh, a week of tracking, I pulled Corey and Dave aside, and I said, this isn't going to work. we got to get another bass player. It's just not, it's not grooving. And yeah. so I got one of my good friends, Mike Percaro, mm -hmm. who went on to be Totos, to come up, and, and uh, he, did the, he did the tracks on the next so two So Mike albums. Percaro played the bass on the World's Away album? I don't know if I knew that. Look on the credits. It says I will. Special thanks. <laughs> well, that's, that's all. Why. That's all they could do for that. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. a different thing because you couldn't. That'd be too much to say. Bass by you know. Yeah. We ran it sure. by him, and he he said it was fine. Wow. Um, yeah. I didn't realize that. Wow. So one thing I I am really curious about is you work on the Pointer Sisters uh, "So Excited" album. That hit, I'm so excited, is really the thing that starts to propel the second part of their career, which I think cements them as like hit makers. They go on a pretty good run after that, you know, throughout yeah. the 80s. And it's largely because of the success of I'm so excited. 
Did you work on that? And as you did, what did you do? And did you know that it was something special? I, I mixed all of the first five Pointer Sisters albums. The, okay. Um, all of them. So they were on uh, Richard because Richard Perry yes. discovered them, I believe, right? Yeah. Or well, he didn't discover pretty- them. They had been making records and they were very different. It's kind of interesting. They, they, they had been making records. Uh, I believe, I don't know who, uh, I, they're from San Francisco, but they've mm-hmm. been making records that were uh, quite unique and interesting. Mm-hmm. And Richard, I don't know how many stories you want me to tell, but because there's, there's one around every corner. <laughs> okay, I'm in Hawaii on a vacation and I get an infection in, in my inner ear. And so I go to the doctor and, and say, what's going on? And he says, oh yeah, well, you can't, you know, you have to see me if you, if this could break your eardrum. So if you, you know, you come and see me before you take for your flights to make sure you can fly. So he, he does that. I go in and he says, oh, good news and bad. Oh yeah, what's the good? You can fly home. Really? Yeah, because your eardrum's broken. I said, what? <laughs> so I get on the plane with the most pain I've ever had in my life when the thing's pressurizing and depressurizing and get home. I run to the ENT and he looks in there and he says, no, no, it's not broken. He said, I see what, what the doctor over there, someone that, you know, not a specialist would think might've been a, a tear, but it's not. He said, that's the good news. The bad news is I'm probably going to have to puncture your eardrum to uh, let the fluid out. And I said, I, that's a joke, right? And he said, no, no, but don't worry. He said, it, you know, it's with a precision hole. Uh, the eardrum is the most regenerative part of the human body. It's a bit like a lizard's tail. If I didn't know that. Just a, just a precise hole, it will try to close up. He says, in fact, when I punk, when I make the hole, if, if liquid doesn't come out, I put a Teflon tube in there so that it won't close to get the liquid to come out for about a week. And then I'll take the tube out and it'll seal up. Wow. And I went, no, you won't. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know who oh. I am? Do you know that I'm a record producer and my I need my ears? <laughs> so I, I went. I went and got a second opinion from you know, uh, and they told me the exact same thing. And I'm I'm sitting at home, depressed out of my mind. It's over. It's over. Yeah, yeah. And Richard Perry calls me and he said, "Bill, I just, you know, I started my record company and my first act of the Pointer Sisters, and I've I've uh, done a." an album that I can't I'm not I've mixed twice two different people Mm. and you gotta you gotta mix it for me because by then I was producing and I wasn't so as you know I didn't have as much time to devote to mixing and stuff so I said I said I told him the sad story I said Richard you know I I my ear is messed up I you know the only way to do it is to put a hole in it I don't know you know (laughs) and Richard who you know who could talked rice and talked the white off of rice said, Oh, Bill, I'd rather have you with one ear than anyone else with two. Yes. And I went, Oh yeah. Right. So I said, let me think about it. And I hung up and I went, you know, what have I got to lose? What have I got to lose? So I called him Richard and said, okay, I got to be a couple of days. I got to go to the doctor and get my, a hole punched in my ear. So I went, he punched the hole. Sure enough, it wasn't coming out. He put the tube in. He said, come back in a week. I'll take it out. I said, it'll be longer than a week because whatever, however screwed up my hearing is, I want to mix the whole album with it. I don't want to change it in the middle. So I mixed the whole first album with fire on it uh, with, with, uh, with that, which yeah. sure enough, the ears were a little out of phase. So there was a little too much low end that Doug Sachs and mastering took off. Wow. But, but that was that. But yeah, then 
which is interesting because that first record that he did with them was all covers. Yeah. All kind of rock covers. Yeah. And then he did the second record, which I didn't care for at all, was, uh, I believe, even more rock, but, you know, other people's songs, whatever. But um, it, from the third record, when he caught the wave, and then the fourth one and fifth one, it was all over. Yeah. I'm kind of bouncing around. What about, let's talk about Huey Lewis and the News, because you work on their first album, and then you work on the Hard at Play album, which is sort of their, I like that album a lot, but it was the first one as the peak period for Huey is starting to go down the other side. But I think it's a strong album. How did you get involved with them? So Bob Brown managed Pablo Cruz. He, he was a stock trader on, on, when I met him. Uh, and then, of course, after the, the third, their third album, my first, uh, went platinum, he didn't have to trade stocks anymore. But he called me up one day and he said, can you come up here? Uh, I, want, I want to take you to a club and, and hear a band. Tell me if I'm crazy. So he took me up and uh, went, went to the club, went in, heard Huey Lewis and American Express, mm -hmm. which was their name, and, uh, and went and talked to the guys afterwards. And uh, everything seemed good. And he called, Bob called me the next day and said, what'd you think? I said, well, uh, the band is good. Uh, the songs are okay, but that kid is a star, right? No doubt about it. And uh, he said, well, what do you want to do? I said, well, let's do some demos, get them signed. So we went into a little studio in San Francisco called Different Fur, and we put down some demos. And I was never, uh, you know, I never liked the songs. I didn't think, I wasn't, there was that new wave thing, and the bass was all these eighth notes, and all this, and... Uh, it wasn't my, I didn't love it, but I loved Huey. Shorten the story, Bob gets a deal at Chrysalis and uh, we're going to make the record. And so we, we talked about, Bob and I talked about whether to do it in LA or San Francisco. San Francisco obviously being a lot cheaper. But I, Huey had come down and I had shown him American recording where I did, I cut my teeth, Richie Podler's place. And he went, he had the, he went crazy for it because it was old, very, very old school, rotary faders and all this. And uh, in retrospect, you know, it's the mistake I made was going, doing it. I mean, he was, you know, Huey is a very persuasive guy and he fell so in love with it that, you know, he had to do it there. And so we, okay, we'll do it in LA. And we, uh, we rented a house in Laurel Canyon where, you know, the big music scene in the sixties was and still was going on in the late 70s, not as much. And, and uh, we did, and we did the record. He I'm 
and Bob said, now Huey has made records before, before we started, he said, Huey's made records before. And, you know, he's, he's going to want to have a voice in what goes on. Uh, you know, it's not, you know, you won't have to put as much into it as you did with Pablo Cruz in terms of shaping the band. I, and I said, okay, so, you know, we did it and we were doing overdubs and I called Bob one day and I said, Bob, you know, we're, we're doing great on the overdubs, but I got to tell you, there's not a hit on this record. And he said, are you kidding? I said, no, I'm not. And he said, well, finish up whatever the first three were that might have had a chance finish those do me, give me some rough mixes and let me go to chrysalis great gave them to him went to chrysalis called me up he said they think we're great this is a hit that's a hit and if we're lucky this one will be a third I said okay finished the record um we had a playback party at the house in laurel canyon invited friends over whatever whatever and i'm uh we're you know, those playback parties are, were a lot of back slapping and whatever. Sure. And so the A&R guy comes up to me and says, uh, uh, well, what do you think, Bill? And I said, Roger, I'll tell you what I think. I think we don't have a hit on this record. And he looked at me like I was drunk and I was <laughs> drinking a Coke. And he said, no, I think we're fine. And turned around and walked away. That's it. And the record came out. There were no hits on the record. And uh, I'm building my studio now, 1980. And I get a call from a very dejected Huey. I said, what's wrong? He said, Mr. Watson just called and said, we have to get another producer because there's no hits on the record. And I went livid. And really? all, I, could, I, I, all I, I said to Huey, I mean, inside, I've, yeah. uh, like I said, I hold back. Uh -huh. uh, I, I said, Huey, what I know is you're going to make it. Uh -huh. And I'm going to be there, whether, you know, whether we're working together or not, I'm going to be there egging you on. You, yeah. you are going to make it. This is an, can be a nasty business. Of course, all I'm thinking about at that point is the knife in my back. Mm -hmm. And uh, it can be a nasty business, but you'll get through it. And that was it. So, of course, I called Roger Watson's boss. And uh, I don't know that I was screaming yet. No, I wasn't. <laughs> but I said, we need to talk. And so he and Roger came, took me to dinner, and I pled my case and looked him right in the eye and said, you looked at me at that party and I told you there were no hits on this record. Why am I being axed for this? And of course there was no good answer and whatever. Um, I'm a little, little ticked off honestly at Bob Brown who didn't stand behind me either. Who no kidding. Also, no, and in fact, what's really funny, Huey never knew this story until about a month ago when I sent him the book, because it's in the really? book. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I sent him the book. I mean, he doesn't know the, the ins and outs of it. I mean, of you course. Know, as much of it, you know, the last. And uh, so from there, by the way, honestly, we thought we were going to be records, making records till yeah. we were old and gray. Yeah. And he called me a couple of weeks later and said, I I've, I've sat with four different producers and I can't stand what they say, any of them say. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, Another week later, he, he came by the studio, the construction site, mm. with a couple of the guys, and he said, we just did some work with someone they said would, would be great for us, and I'm, I won't even play it for you. I'm, I'm embarrassed. If they think this is what we should be, I'm not going to make records with them. I'm out. And so somehow, somehow, Bob Brown managed to convince Chrysalis to letting 
the band produced themselves. And there again, why? Why did I get punished? I don't understand. Yeah. But once again, they when they finished the record, there were no hits on the record. And he called his old producer, Mutt Lang, yes. and said, you know, Mutt, I need a hit. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't remember the original title right now. So uh, do he, you believe in love? That well, that Huey renamed it and re, reworked it a little bit. Oh, it was it was yeah. called something else before. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it had, yeah, and um, and uh, and the rest is history because yeah. obviously they were already changing. I mean, you listen to between the first three records and you totally. just hear, you hear everything getting better and better, and of course, exactly. sports, it was all over. Yep. So so that's it, and uh, uh, then how? And I told this story to my friends of people I met for years. And every time I told it, I said, and I wouldn't be surprised if we don't work together again someday because, you know, and so sure enough, uh, what is it? Nine years later or something. Yeah. We had just put out the uh, picture of this album, which uh -huh. was a total departure in the wrong direction. Very, uh -huh. you know, small world, small world small was world, the right. 1988. Yeah. yeah. I like that album, but it is very different. Yes. Yeah. Well, you're, you know, the fans, yeah, got nope. to go. A lot of crap. So he was trying to get back. So Bob, they they started another album, uh, and Bob called me and uh, said, "Can you come up here? I want to talk to you." And I and I went up there, and and he played me a, um, a demo of a couple days off, and I said, Great song. Yeah, "Let's go to work." Yeah. <laughs> Let's, let's do that and yes uh, so and then Good. so we we did the and it was it was tough because the the insecure you know things change over time with a band sure. you know um and um so the songwriting wasn't and they knew it so we you know i was getting outside songs and whatnot and and funny enough huey and i got on the phone and called mutt and uh said you know we could use another single <laughs> and uh he sent, he, this too had a different title, I don't remember. He sent us Hit Me Like a Hammer. Yeah.
which, which was the second single. But the funny thing, uh, it's not so funny, a, a story I love to tell about that record a uh, couple days off is, so that's going to be the first single. There's no question about it. And um, I get a call from the uh, a and I mean, sorry, the promotion man who says, Bill, and this is a point in history when the top, uh, the top FM stations in the country were not playing big guitars. Mm -hmm. They just wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And that this is part of a whole tail wagging the dog that I can't stand that, you know, that radio was telling the record companies how to, what kind of music to make instead yeah. of the other way around. It's just wrong on every level. Yeah. Or as I say, wrong with a capital R. Mm. Um, and, um, and so uh, the guy calls me up and he says, they're not playing big guitars. You have to take those off. Mm. And I said, you can't. The song is built around them. And he yeah. said, would you just put acoustics on it? I said, it's an angst-driven song about a guy with a lot of pressure that needs the weekend. It, 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 you can't do it. Yeah. Would you please talk to Huey and, and ask him? I said, sure. So Huey and, he, you know, he, a few expletives. That, you uh -huh. know, of course not. You know, that's the way it'll go out. And the guy had told me, he said, if we don't get, he called back. And when I told him, he said, okay, but if we don't, if we don't get those stations and we won't, the record will not break top 10. How high did it go? Number 10. Really? I like that album so much and it deserved to be the comeback that I think it was meant to be, you know? So, like I said, I really like small world, but it wasn't what the fans were in the mood for. And it's like, well then check out hard at play. Cause that album is so strong. That's the one you thought you wanted and it didn't get the chance. I don't think maybe styles had changed. You talking about the guitars being too heavy. Maybe that was it. I don't know, but I love that album. Yeah. Yeah. It did. Okay. But yeah, not, not, certainly not yeah. like, yeah. Yeah, I had Chris Hayes, the guitarist on here about a year ago, and we were talking uh -huh. about that too. And um, yeah, there's just, there's great songs on it and it it deserved more than I got, frankly. Do you still stay, stay in touch with Huey at all? Yeah. Do you? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, uh, wrote, he wrote a real nice, uh, a real nice endorsement of the book thanks. for the right. back cover. That's great. Yeah, it's really sad. What, it is his, he, you know, sad. he was when their that album came out and he was making the rounds finally on the press talking about his ear problems. It's so tragic. A guy like that. It's so tragic. I asked him, I asked him if I could put it in the book, you know, in the chapter on him. And he said, sure, why not? It's what, it's really? What, it's, it's what's there. Good. So, um, okay. I got a couple more, uh, you mentioned Ringo earlier. Let's talk about that. And my understanding is that, and I don't know, I'm not an expert on Ringo's solo material, I'll be honest right now. But my understanding is that all four Beatles guys at some point or another play on the Ringo album that you worked on, right? Yep. So what happened was George, uh, the Beatles break up and, um, you know, they start on their solo careers. And Ring, you know, George had stayed very close with Ringo and started a record in England with him. And Richard Perry had met Ringo through Harry Nielsen, who was good friends with him. And, and so Richard called me up one day and said, we're gonna do a record with Ringo. Here, here's something to edit out. <laughs> do it, I do it Thank all you. the time. <sighs> we're going to do a record with Ringo. And I said, Oh, really? And he said, Yeah. And 
I said, and he wants to use Jim Keltner on drums. I said, what? He said, no, not instead of along with. Oh, okay. Because they had done some things like that already, some two drum things with George, whatever. And so, okay, well, um, uh, we got started and uh, with uh, Klaus Vormann, who was the fifth Beatle playing bass. And we got started and George, the second or third day, George comes over and uh, listens to what we've done and uh, really likes it. And so he, he joins in with what's going on to, to uh, help matters and, and offer advice and whatnot. And then, the, then Richard says, oh yeah, and tomorrow Lennon's coming in. What? <laughs> and so that night was the first and only time three of the Beatles ever played together after the breakup. And Paul, they were all, the great thing is they all were jumping in, as I like to call it, you know, the, that was the get by with a lot of help from my friends. Yeah, yeah. They were all, they were all going to give him a leg up to get him going. And Paul, unfortunately, had a, had a drug bust when those things would keep you out of the country and he couldn't come in. But I am, I know, I'm convinced that the, the bad blood between he and John had calmed down enough that if, if he'd come in the country, there would have been a Beatle reunion. And it was funny because after the word got out, the one night on that first album, the first Ringo album, that Lennon was there, that we had news crews the next night, all there expecting to see the Beatles come in. Uh -huh. And there, there was still only the two of them. But, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, you know, needless to say, a, a, a pinch me moment to be sure. No kidding. No <laughs> kidding. You started out as a musician uh, yeah. in a band. Were you, what were your, I don't know what your LA teens, was that the name That's of him. your band? That's them. Okay. So what was your, what were your influences? What were you trying to sound like when you were a budding rock star yourself? Well, the, the band, uh, the band was a combination of the new, at the time, English scene. Mm. This is 1964. The new English scene. And me, who is a huge Beach Boys fan. Mm. And which, um which was great because we did some demos and somebody knew somebody who knew someone in the music business. And we sent them to that person who turned out to be Gary Usher, a name you might not know, but Gary was uh, lived near uh, one of the Beach Boys, uh, near the family home. In fact, he and Brian were good friends. He wanted to be in the Beach Boys and uh, didn't, wasn't chosen obviously but he did write uh in my room and uh 409 with brian oh, wow. a couple of the early beach boy hits yes. and so it was quite interesting that 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 he gary usher signed us mm -hmm. um yeah wow wow so then working with the beatles must have been huge and there was no bad blood in the room then oh uh, no george no. ringo and john you saw all three of them in a room at the same time Work ma making music, yes. yeah, making music, yeah, and it, and it, no, no tension. That's incredible. Oh, no. Well, what, what now? You know, from the as I said, George came in like the second day, mm -hmm. and you know, Ringo is just Ringo. You know, he's just jovial and happy-go-lucky, and whatever works, let's do it, lads. You know, he yeah. he never pushed for anything. You know, just let everybody do their thing. And when George came in, he would you know, the, the spotlight would go to him a little bit more than Ringo even a bit, you know, whatever. When John came in, 
all eyes went straight to John. Straight to John. Yeah, yeah. boom. He, it was obvious he's going to run the show. When he's happy with the track, the track is done and so on. Wow. And uh, this was a song that he had written uh, as kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek about himself years earlier. I'm the greatest, it's called. Uh -huh. He kind of revamped it for, for Ring. So we did it and we, we got the track and he uh, uh, we had a, a, his he had a rough vocal on there. It was only 16 track then and he had a rough vocal to so Ringo could learn, the, you know, the melody and how it went and stuff. And there came a point when, as it did many times, uh, where we needed the track mm -hmm. and it was going to be a race. But I had the presence of mind to put it down, the rough mix I had going, put it down and record it nice. and kept it kept it to myself for years until there was a big, about 15 years ago, a big anthology yeah. uh, from John. And they called me for some talk and advice and this and that. And I said, oh, I got something for you. No way. They got that from you. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. So cool. Um, okay. Just got a couple more, if that's all right. Sure. Whitney Houston. Let's talk about Whitney Houston. Um, my understanding is that you work on her debut album, which is one of the biggest ever, but then you also had something to do with the, I will always love you recording, yeah. right? Yeah. That's, that's the good story. I think of course she's making her first movie, the bodyguard mm -hmm. and David Foster made records that she would lip sync to in the movie when she was on stage and all that kind of stuff. But David called me one day and, and said, um, they're about to shoot the last scene in the movie. And it, the song they're doing is a ballad and she doesn't want to lip sync it because the camera is going to be right on her face and she, she wants to do it live. So will you get a truck and meet me in Florida because that's where they're going to be shooting at the Fountain Blue Hotel and we'll, uh, and, and we'll cut it. And I said, you got it. So that's what I done did and got the truck and went down, got it all set up and uh, kind of did a sound check with the band and um, uh, it was, it was quite interesting. <laughs> she, she came bopping up on the stage uh, when she got there, and David said, um, "David said, uh, have you two met?" And I said, "No, we haven't." And she went, "Sure, we have, Bill." 
Remember the first album? And as I thought in my in my little pea brain and can assure you today, believe me, sweetheart, if I'd ever looked in those eyes this close, I'd remember it. No and, kidding. And, and I still remember that, but it, uh -huh. that was the first time. But it was such a terrible moment because I made myself look like, I mean, she made me look like an idiot. Uh -huh. kind of thing. I don't know what she was thinking. But in any case, but the, the funny part about that, I always thought was kind of interesting was, you know, here she had sung in front of literally, I don't know what the biggest group was, but, you know, literally tens of thousands of people at that point. And here there's, she's in a, in a dark room with, uh, you know, with 30 people maybe a crew you know a film crew and you know some producers and people and she was nervous she was absolutely nervous and so the first couple of take you know the first take went down and she she knew it you know she's trying to shake it off and she did a second take and 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 then a third one and it was like it was okay but it wasn't magic and uh, took a break and at that point kevin costner came in the truck to listen and i said kind of nervous huh and you know, yeah she'll calm down she'll get it she'll get it i said oh i believe it believe me mm -hmm. and so four was really good five was unbelievable and uh six was unbelievable and there you go six was the mat six was the one you used i i don't know which one david used if it was five okay. or six but it wouldn't okay. matter they were both yeah. absolutely spectacular and especially all you know the the it was on five was the first time when she hit when the break ends and she hits and i uh -huh. and it was just like you know i just yeah. fell back in my chair as i'm holding the faders you know because it was just like chills going up yes. my neck i could only imagine what it must have been like to be right there watching her hit that note yeah i um i don't know if you've seen that documentary 20 feet from stardom about the background singers and that scene of mary clayton where they isolate her vocals from the stones is give me i'm getting goosebumps uh -huh. just thinking about it and you watch her face listen to herself sing that yeah. part yeah just goosebumps everywhere and it reminds me of what it must have been like watching whitney hit those notes at that time yeah absolutely yeah what's uh, david foster like um scratch that um okay. by the way when we <laughs> Well, okay. Dave, okay, what's David Foster like? He is like the most talented producer pop music's ever produced. Yeah, and he'll tell yeah. you that. He knows he is. There you okay. go. There you go. Got it, you know, got it. Okay. I, I, I've, you know, we've, we've spent a lot of time together and whatnot, and I have the utmost respect for his talent. I just wish he didn't have to, you know, wear it, you know, like wear he wears medals and, you know, yeah. he won't anyway yeah um, humility is not his strong point but he can back up everything he says you know yeah yeah but he you don't need to say it you yeah, know that's yeah, the whole that's point true. that's true um there's something oh um you don't have to go back to this i just because you mentioned uh it was when i when i when i was on the road with the jacksons doing that album and i was on the bus bet you want to read the book now I um <laughs> Um, uh, I have to tell you that, that, that the, you know, they didn't film it, unfortunately back then, but there was a camera, the, the recording truck had a camera on stage, uh, you know, however, so I could kind of see what was going on. And I literally Michael Jackson out there dancing like a fool, 
singing near perfect vocals, yeah. I, I'd forget to mix. I just would sit there. I was mesmerized watching him. Wow. I, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. I believe it. Oh, man. I didn't even think about that. Did you interact? Did you like talk to Michael at all? Or did you just make the album after the fact? Um, that's a whole great story in the book that I'll okay. say for okay. you to, to do. That's always, the, uh, that's always the, the conundrum with these things, is wanting to tell enough stories that you entice people to read it, but not so many stories that they, don't, they no longer need to read it, you know? They're well, trying here. to find that middle ground. Yeah. Here, here, let's put this to see if you can insert this. Okay. That's a great, take two. There's a really great story about my interactions with Michael Jackson that's in the book that right. I think you're going to really enjoy. Good. Good. All the more reason to go get this book. Okay, I got two left. Number one, I feel like we should talk about Leo Sayer. Um, you worked with him during that pinnacle period with You Make Me Feel Like Dancing. In the revolving door of drummers that I had on Steely Dan's Asia album, in from New York came Steve Gadd, who I had uh, uh, gone crazy for 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, Paul Simons, that he played that, that, that great beat with the drag snare on and stuff. So I was really thrilled that he was going to come in. And he so he came in the first day and we cut we cut two songs in one day. And uh, I called Richard Perry and said, Richard, you know that Steve Gadd? He said, yeah. I said, I, I've got him here on this Steely Dan session. He is a monster. I cannot believe how, how this guy plays. And Richard goes, uh, do you think I could have a session with him? And I'm going, well, uh, I, we started two. Uh, let me call Gary Katz. And so Gary is a, was very re respectful of Richard and said, mm -hmm. okay, but he also knew Richard's ways. Richard was always going overtime and mm -hmm. you know, over budget and over everything. And he said, but you can't, you can't let him go over. We got to start on time. The boys will kill me. So I called Richard and I said, okay, you can come in, but you know, we got, we, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to turn the monitors off, <laughs> uh, you know, if, if we, if we're not done. And so he came in with Leo. He was in the middle of making that record. And I think he'd already cut the song. And he, and he we uh, started You Make Me Feel Like Dancing. And uh, that's, that was one of, that's another one. There's only been a, a handful. And that's yet another one that when 
uh, he hit, he started off with this rough foot. And, and I just went, Oh my gosh. And, and then Gad's playing with the drag thing, no less. Yeah, and, whatnot. Yeah. and I, I went, when we were done, I went, we have a hit and we got it a record and by a mile record for Richard Perry, we got it in like two hours and uh, 35 minutes or something. And of course, Richard always wanted to push said, uh, Bill, can we do another one? I said, Richard, we gotta be done at one. Yeah. And we, we did another one, uh, which, which I think was the third single on the album. Um, how, how much love? I think that's what it's called. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it, it's nothing stupendous on, on that one, on the drum part particularly. I think the bridges were kind of cool or something. But, okay. but anyway, we, we did it and that it all came from the same Asia session. That is crazy. I, um, I don't own that album, so I haven't ever seen the liner notes. I just have a soft copy of it. And that's what gets lost in this new day and age is who Absolutely. played what. So I've never known that Steve Gadd played the drums on that song. And you making this connection to 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, it's like, yes, of course the same guy did that, sh like, shuffle beat or whatever. Makes so much sense. Um, now, now, what doesn't make sense is that that same guy did the song Asia. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's but, true. but may I say, boy, did he do that song yeah, Asia. Yeah, yeah. There were. Uh, let me tell you, that was a lot of... Uh, a lot of rehearsal, more rehearsal than any other song, and that meant two takes. Oh, really? Yeah. Whoa. Steve Gadd's amazing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. Um, okay, last one. Did you, what did you do with Miles Davis on the 2-2 album? I, I mixed Tutu, a part of parts of Tutu and a mandala, um, and uh, the the parts uh, Marcus Miller did, and uh, like that. And then, uh, then, and he didn't come to any of the mixes. Mm -hmm. And then, um, uh, then Tommy Lapuma called me because uh, Miles was doing a, the European jazz festivals, and he wanted to do to make a live album. Mm -hmm. So. 
that's what we did. And we got to, we, we started in the south of France and the first night, the first, the first one was an evening concert uh, in a, out in a, in a park, which there were a lot of. And um, so here I, here's Tommy and Miles come up and we meet and the road manager comes up and says, Miles, the equipment hasn't arrived, but I've spent all day and I think I've got all the equipment now. And he, he goes, I ain't playing no effing equipment, rented equipment, cancel the show. <clears throat> and he was mad as heck that somebody had let uh -huh. down. Uh -huh. And uh, um, in fact, we went back to the hotel and going up the elevator, he was still grimacing like crazy. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, so, but we recorded a lot of those shows. Robin Ford was on with him. Uh, and uh, there were some great shows, but it was never some uh, whatever record company i think it was warner brothers yeah at the time mm -hmm. never thought um that it was good enough i guess and it was never mixed until he died of course and uh you know that's yeah i believe the family got involved and Probably. put it out somehow some way and that's one of my, one of my many pet peeves in life is yeah you know i'm, I'm really big on on that protecting artists you know if i bet if, they, they should have a, a, a big say in what, what comes out. It's their it art. represents them. It's their, Absolutely. exactly. Um, and, is there anyone you didn't work with that you feel like you Phil could Collins. have? Phil Collins, that's the one. That I Talking wish about I drummers. Could've. Yeah. That I wish I could have. Well, yeah. yeah. Or somebody, when you listen to them, you think, you know what? I would have, I would have nailed this. I know just what to do for this person. Well, you know, I, I'm just all I'm all I'll say is uh, two that come to mind are Phil Collins, just because you know his pop sensibilities and his drumming are I just love it. Me love too. It. And my favorite, probably my favorite R&B band, which my good friend George Massenberg did, Earth, Wind, and Fire. And you my know, I used too. I used to go. <laughs> I used to go. I went a couple of times to mixing sessions he was doing, and I would you know, be standing there with he and Maurice and I, and I, uh, and I, you know, he was doing an excellent job, please. Mm -hmm. But I just wanted my hands on those faders so bad. I can't tell you, <laughs> I just wanted to do it so bad. Yes. And uh, I'll give you an, another story that's related please. to that. Please. Um, and, and related to that perhaps is this, I've always, uh, I've kind of known from an early day that uh, I have a gift. I believe I, I believe God gave me a gift of balance, and I think all of the best engineers have that gift. Um, and it, it's I guess it's less important today because mixes are so manipulated and whatnot. But the kind of stuff, obviously, my that I love, like the direct-to-disc records and whatnot, you can't do that. You know, there aren't that many engineers that can do that. There are definitely some, believe me, but, uh, and like that, but I've always known it was a gift and I always thought, what if the gift left? And son of a gun, if it didn't one day. And it's really funny, I mixed, you mentioned Melissa Manchester, I mixed her first big Midnight Blue, the first hit that album, I mixed that album.
producer, Vinnie Poncia, uh, didn't call me back to do the next two albums that he did. Mm -hmm. But the, the fourth album was produced by Leon Ware, and Melissa had him call me to mix it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I went into Studio 55, and I got the songs. And, you know, Leon's a great musician, great producer, great everything. And I start mixing, and I know what everything does, but I'm not feeling what I'm doing. I just can't feel it. And I, I, I went, I called him and said, can I just do another song, start with something? Sure, do whatever you want. So I went, put up another song, this is good. I still didn't have it. I did not have it. And I don't know what it was. And I went, I went to him and I said, I'm really sorry, I'll pay for the studio time. I have no idea, this has never happened before, but I'm, I can't give you what you need. I can't, I'm just not, I don't know what it is. Weird. And I was freaked. And you know, I'm sure there was quite a bit of depression for a while until someone called for something else and I went and mixed and, oh, that feels great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and then uh, it was kind of sad, but then it never happened again until it did. And of all things, uh, so the brains, may I say, of Earth, Wind and Fire was Maurice White. And he did a solo album in my recording studio and I had nothing to do with it. And normally in my studio, when there were artists in there that if I wasn't involved, I didn't come around. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, and, but with Maurice, I wasn't not gonna come around. Mm -hmm. So I was, and he and I, you know, between different kinds, of, we started, we started a, a friendship. Mm -hmm. And when the album was done, he said, Bill, I want you to mix the album. And I was overjoyed. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. And so, uh, he wanted to use, I didn't have a, a computer on the faders yet. And of course, I, I told you, you know, I mixed for performance anyway, but sure. a lot of people, once that computer thing started, that's what they had to have. So, okay. So we went to a studio um, that had it and I put up the first song, which was a kicking song with horns and stuff. And it was like, oh boy, this is great. And about two hours, three hours into it, I'm not feeling it. I tear the mix down and start again. I'm not feeling it. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, I waited I, about four or five, I guess it was about five hours. I called him, I said, Reese, I, I don't know what's going on, but let me start with something else. And he said, okay, do the ballad. And this ballad is a killer. And if there's anything I love, it's R&B ballads. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, 
you know the rest. Second day, I'm in there, and I didn't. It didn't take me but two hours, and I went. It's gone. It is gone. And wow. I was, I was. I'm not sure if I really cried, but I yeah. was crying. I mean, yeah. I said, I'll pay for the studio time. No, you won't. I said, this happened once before, Reese, and I don't know what it is. It's, I just don't know what to say, and it kills me because I love this album, and yeah, and I'm really sorry. And he said, no problem, no problem. He's very sweet about it, but boy, did it hurt. Wow. And it's, it's never happened again. And you know, it never happened again. I hope not. It's interesting you say that. I'm a huge Earth, Wind, and Fire fan too. And we sometimes bring, ask back former guests to deep dive an album they worked on, right? To go track by track, hear the stories behind it all. And just a couple of months ago, I did a deep dive on that album with Martin Page. Oh, yeah. Who wrote many of the songs and everything. Yeah. yeah. So we did we did the same thing. We went story by, you know, track by track. What's all the stories and stuff like that. So, yes, I love that album. And I can only imagine how discouraging that must have been to have a moment to to stand up, to on get on stage, so to speak, to perform, do your best with someone you love that much and have your talent kind of come up short in the moment. Just, it's amazing. It still baffles me, you know, because yeah. I, I, so much, I mean, I mix so intuitively, you know, it's just yeah. like, I just start doing it and, and it, manages to work you know yeah, yeah. It, it two times in my life it just wasn't Crazy. working and the second one really hurt the most yeah. obviously and you're a legend so it's just that's uh that's interesting uh well bill before we go i'm just curious like you live where are you in the bay area down in la what do you do today um well <laughs> first of all i love those kind of loaded questions um, no. <laughs> I was interviewed recently when the guy said, you know, what about retirement? And I said to him, please don't use profanity with me if you don't mind. I would. Um, and uh, there is no such word. My yeah. dream has always been, I've said it for years. My dream is to go out on the console. I'll push the talk back and say, I really think the second course, second course, <sighs> and that's it. Um, okay. So, uh, what happened is, you know, I had a, I built my own studio in 1980, uh, turned, turned out to be extremely successful, still regarded as one of the best tracking rooms in Los Angeles. Um, and when the record business started slipping away from us all, uh, uh, you know, th th this studio was a huge piece of me. It's not, it wasn't like any other studio. Everything in it was, was hand built. We built the console. We had two mic preamps out in the studio. We have, you know, I have a huge collection of tube microphones, um, on and on and on. And uh, I, I wasn't, you know, studios started giving their time away, you know, had to, had to. Once people started recording at home, record companies wouldn't pay. Uh, I always give the example of the Rod Stewart album I was working on, and I sent the bill in, you know, unlimited budget, sent the bill in, and the record company calls me and says, uh, your bill is too high excuse me? Mm -hmm. uh, well, that's, that's what I charge, what the studio charges. Well, you know, we, we haven't been paying that for studios anymore. I said, well, I'm sorry, this is what they agreed to. And that's mm -hmm. it. And I knew then it's over. It is over. Mm -hmm. So I didn't want to do that bastardize the thing. So uh, the studio next door, which was all mixed rooms, 
Larrabee, I'd always wanted a real studio. So I sold, I kept all the equipment, but I sold them the building mm -hmm. and proceeded to get cancer, the throat cancer I had, uh, which I got, you know, treated and healed from and won't be back. Good. And, uh, and then it was like, well, I opened right away. I opened a, a mix room in Los Angeles in Burbank to continue mixing. Uh, but unfortunately the, or fortune, I think it's fortunate now, the, 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 uh, I had a two year lease on the building. And as soon as I moved in, I, I wish I'd made it five years because I just loved the location and it worked perfectly for my needs. Hmm. And uh, so uh, the, the people that bought the building w wanted the whole thing for themselves, but my, I had two little rooms and they were off by themselves by this lovely garden. And they said, you can stay until we need it. And the day came when they needed it. So now what, do I do another room? And I went, no, uh, and talked to my wife. Maybe we should get out of LA. I, I, my, I lost my love affair with Los Angeles 15 years, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. But I, there, I, there was still a music business and, and the whole thing, you know, but now that it wasn't so hot and everything so good, uh, let's go somewhere. And Nashville made the most sense because there's still music. So here I am two and a half yeah. years and uh, I, there's so much that's great about it. The weather not being one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I don't like cold weather and it's mm -hmm. a little too cold for me. It's not, it's not uh, Minnesota, but it's cold. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but there, the music community is much more of a community than LA ever was. Uh, the, the town has been very welcoming to me. And I have to tell you, I've done uh, two of the best albums done. <laughs> I've done a lot of great stuff since I've been here. None of it is out because it was mm -hmm. all scheduled to come out last year and nobody would release anything. So there'd be a lot coming out. Mm -hmm. It's all on my website. There's a what's new tab on billschnee.com oh, to see what I've been up to. But two of the best albums I've done in 15 years uh, uh, are both waiting to come out. Just country artists. Nope. Nope. Um, nope. Uh, one of them, uh, one of them is Michael Feinstein. I don't know if sure, you're familiar with him. Sure, of course. Yeah. He's, so for those that aren't, he is a uh, uh, piano player, kind of the the songbook era, of, and uh, just the, he has to be the foremost authority in the world on the whole songbook era. I've been to his house and seen part of his collection of anything and everything to do with that era just astounding collection of anything and everything from recordings that were never heard, transcription discs, you know, arrangements, of course, posters, uh, special pictures, all kinds of stuff. He actually worked with Ira Gershwin when he was young, when Ira was old, but he, Michael was young. So Michael wanted to do for Concord Records, a very strange album, it's, which is uh, Gershwin songs done as duets with country music artists Ooh, as the duet wow. partner. Cool. Now, um, I don't know if you know who uh, Gipper was the RCA dog. Nipper was the RCA dog that- Oh, know, the one that, yeah, yeah. With his head tilted sideways into the horn. When I tell that, most times when I tell that what the album is, that's what I get. I get Nipper, a turn that <laughs> said hideways, head sideways with his album. <laughs> anyway, the producer uh, that, that they asked to do it, Kyle Lenning, uh, did the nipper uh, dog stance. But then as he thought about it, he came up with a, what amounts to a brilliant idea. Michael is a pianist and he called Michael and he said, Michael, what would you think if we 
didn't have a piano on this. And of course, all these songs were written on piano and Michael is a piano player. And Michael said, I love that. And so what Kyle did, he put together kind of a, if you know, uh, Union Station, mm -hmm. Alan and Krause's band, mm -hmm. the Union Station kind of thing with, you know, fiddle, mm -hmm. <clears throat> with all acoustic, upright bass, all acoustic, the drums on brushes. And the combination of that beautiful backdrop with those chords, mm -hmm. those melodies, and whatnot, it's just a delicious album. Beautiful. The other one is, I only produced one country artist in my career, a girl that, as I put in the book, is one of the best singers I ever put a microphone in front of, and her name is Mandy Barnett. Hmm. And it's very sad to me that she is not, you know, a household name, because she is phenomenal. Hmm. And that was many years ago. Uh, she was a kid when I did that record, 26 years ago or something. Hmm. So, uh, but she is just as good as always. And there's a, a new record company and the, uh, uh, the producer, the head of the record company, approached her about doing a record uh, of the songs that were on Billie Holiday's last album. Mm. It's a Torch album. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mandy is primary, has been a country singer. And it's a torch album. And Mandy's, she told me her eyes lit up when he said that because 20 years ago, uh, a musician here in town handed her that Billie Holiday album and said, you know, Mandy, someday you should do a, an album just like this. And now here this record company is saying, would you like nice. to do that? Great. And she said, absolutely. And they got, they got one of the outstanding arrangers, old school, how old? He was 95 when he did it, Sam, Sammy Nestico. He just passed away four days ago, wow. uh, Sammy Nestico. And I did it here live with a 55 piece orchestra and this songbird singing. And I mean, it is, it, it, I, it's one of the proudest moments in my Great. career is this Great. album. Great, those both sound incredible. Yeah. Um, okay, Chairman at the Board comes out on March 1st. And, uh, you know, I finished reading Ted Templeman's book recently, and it was so much fun to hear these stories. I just love talking to producers for this very reason. All the gold you're sharing with us, we get to read about it too in that book. I, um, I, I'm, normally I do these interviews after I've read someone's book. This time it was before, but I'm excited to read it and share it. And I just love you, Bill. I've been wanting to do this for so long and hear these stories. I'm so grateful for you. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. I know that uh, that you contacted me back in October of 2019 before, <laughs> you know, the, the book wasn't close yeah. to being out. Yeah. And I, 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 I just saw the email today in my when I was looking at all the emails we've shared. And and uh, I said, you know, I have a book coming out sometime next year. And uh, da, da, da. and it worked out. And it worked you were out. true to your word. Yeah. Well, thank you, Bill. All right. There you have it. Bill Schnee. Chairman at the board. It comes out on March 1st, and uh, it's going to be great. Go to his website. I put the link in here. If you want to stay in contact and find out when the book drops and all that kind of stuff, pre-order your own copy. I posted about this a couple of weeks ago on the Facebook page. Check it out because you know. I mean, like I was saying, that Ted Templeman book is so good. I've read a few other ones recently that I'm not going to tell you about because they relate to upcoming guests. These books are a blast. Chairman at the board. Now, Bill may not have had a great story for this song, but I love it. 
It is Art Garfunkel's cover of Stevie Wonder's I Believe When I Fall In Love, It'll Be Forever. I love this song, so we had to close it out with this song. Uh, next week's guest, I'm not 100% sure what I'm going to do, but I'm leaning toward putting out an episode with a person whose voice is on several humongous hits, and yet this person never got credit for it. In fact, it's one of the biggest uh, kind of fiascos in pop history. I'll just leave it at that. Huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man, for putting everything together. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do. Guys, you can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We may, if all goes well, have a deep dive coming out later this week, I hope. And the fact that we've been discussing sort of that soft yacht rock of the 70s sound that relates to the deep dive that I hope is coming out this weekend. So keep your eyes peeled for that. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you. I believe when I fall